I'm not going mad, 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 I'm not going mad. Welcome to Gatekeeper. A podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. It's been a couple weeks since we've been episode and I'm excited that we're back. And I'm especially excited because this is one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the show so far with the great Carol Leifer. If you're not familiar with her work, it it spans uh, from writing and producing and performing. 25 appearances on David Letterman, wrote some of the most iconic episodes of Seinfeld, helped develop Ellen DeGeneres' first show, written for SNL, The Larry Sanders Show. Her IMD page shows such an amazing body of work. She's truly one of the greatest voices in 20th and 21st century comedy. And she wrote a book. And it's called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy by Carol Liefer. And I'm just looking at the cover. It's a very cool cover right now um, with quotes from people that have read this book, including J.J. Abrams, Whoopi Goldberg, Judd Apatow, Sarah Silverman, Jerry Seinfeld, Bill Maher, Chris Rock, Jimmy Kimmel, Larry David, Jay Leno, Paul Reiser, Joan Rivers, Dave Letterman. Clearly, she hangs out with some pretty cool and successful people, and she's learned so many amazing things. When I read this book... I couldn't help but think that it was basically a perfect companion to this podcast. Every chapter is filled with great stories about her career, but also with amazing lessons about how to approach gatekeepers, how to approach people when you're interviewing for job positions with great lists and bullet points on the things that you should do when you're trying to break into this industry. And some amazing stories, some of which you'll get to hear on this episode. I really do think this episode, uh, you'll get a lot out of it. Um, Carol is just amazing and and so warm and really hits on a lot of the themes that we've been getting into this podcast um, for the last year, um, but really nails a lot of them right on the head. So enjoy this episode. Uh, we'll get a quick little sound effect. Keep that little train going. Oh, make it, let's make it a train sound effect. That's easy. You'll throw in a toot toot. And then we're going to get into this conversation with Carol Liefer. Enjoy the episode. Gatekeeper. Welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam, and I am joined today by Carol Liefer. Hi, Jamie. A legend in comedy, if I may say. Oh, Jamie, finish your thought, but thank you. A, a brilliant <laughs> genius uh, with whom comedy today would not be what it is. Oh, my God. I have to come on your podcast more I often. Um, I might even call you God, <laughs> <laughs> the Almighty, and the author of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, Lessons from a Life in Comedy, which I have read a lot of, and it's sensational, and I'm so excited to have you here because... This book is basically what this podcast is all about. I'm so glad. You know, honestly, because when I was approached about writing a book, uh, I thought, like, I have so many stories to tell from being in comedy for almost 40 years, which blows my mind. But what's amazing about it is when I started to think of the stories I wanted to tell, they all had kind of um, a moral to it. Like, do you know, over the course of my long career, like do this, don't do that. You know, kind of like that Mm -hmm. book, (laughs) eat this, don't eat that. It's kind of like, yeah, uh, these are the good things I've done along the way. And here are the boneheaded things I've done along the way. Because, you know, starting out as a stand up comic, 
it's really informed my total career. I mean, when people read my book, I got my writing job on Seinfeld really uh, because, you know, my first audition night in Manhattan at Catch Rising Star, Larry David was the MC who put me through. I went on the first time at the comic strip. The MC that night was Jerry Seinfeld who put me through. So I literally go back to my first day in show business with these people and I feel like I have so much to share because so many people get into comedy and think, well, I'm so funny, I'm going to make it, I'm going to do great, where like talent is probably 50% of it. And the other 50% is people skills and how you conduct yourself and your attitude. And I've known so many people over the years who are so talented, who just blew up, you know, in a bad way, <laughs> just self-destructed because they had bad people skills or just weren't, you know, for whatever reason, weren't motivated to take the right path. So um, I loved writing my book, not only because I get my stories down, but I love the feedback that I'm getting from comics and people who are just starting out in the in the business, even in like a guy in business school wrote to me, he loved my book, because it's really connecting with people of my experience of what to do and certainly what not to do. Yes. Well, and I was telling you before, what I love about it is that it, it, it approaches it from both sides of the gatekeeper perspective where, you know, your career getting to the point where you became a decision maker. So I, I feel like there's great advice on both sides of it. Good. I'm really glad. And what really stood out was hygiene. <laughs> Hygiene's important, isn't it? It is. You know, I, I talk a lot about there are some basics that you think you wouldn't have to tell people, but yeah still do mm -hmm. in 2017. I mean, things as small as people who don't, like I would say, just like take a shower before you have a meeting. <laughs> you know, there's like nothing worse than, uh, I've been on the other side where you interview someone and they're sitting there and all I'm thinking about while they're telling me their credits and their, uh, why they should get this job is like, I would say it was maybe a week ago you took a shower. The <laughs> funk coming off of you is that intense. I mean, stuff like that. St number one with a bullet in having a meeting, being late. I cannot tell you how many people that I've interviewed who come late and then really it's now you're fighting the uphill battle because unless you're brilliant, you've really pissed people off by being late. And sometimes I notice through the years, sometimes people are late as kind of a power play, they feel like, well, I'm really important, so you know what, I'm going to be a little late for this interview. And being on the other side, it's like, well, glad you had your big power play and, and being late, but you're not even in the pool of people being considered because you weren't respectful enough yeah. to the people who are going to see you. So it's really little things like that. I also tell people, uh, be nice to the gatekeepers at your meetings. You know, when I go... Uh, I'm still interviewed for writing jobs. I still interview people for writing jobs to work on my projects. But when I go, I'm nice to the secretary sitting there or the assistant or whoever it is because, you know, they're the person who also has the ear of the person that you're meeting with. And a lot of times, it could, you know, guy could be like, well, I really enjoyed that person. I think they have great, um, you know, attributes to work here. And the assistant will be like, well, they put their feet up on the chair and ordered me around and and then it's kind of over because 
that gatekeeper is really that assistant is really kind of their second in command and it's like well if you didn't like them then i'm not going to like them so there are so many variables but i always tell people you have to develop your people skills because i've known so many people who were talented but who also got ahead because people like to be around them you know even when i worked at seinfeld i had the advantage i'd never written on a sitcom before but i had the advantage because larry david especially, and Jerry, were like, we don't want anybody who's written, who's been corrupted by the system already. We want people who are fresh to sitcom writing. So they hired a lot of their friends, people that they, uh, you know, I always call it the easy hang, you know, people who they like to be around and who they thought were funny and could come up with good ideas. So, um, you know, I always tell people never underestimate people skills because they are really the key to so much of getting ahead because we're all people and we all like to be with nice people and people who treat us well and you never know how that can help you along the way yeah i love that the easy hang and we talk about that for road comics too who you know when it comes down to picking up who you're uh, you know a major headliner going on the road They'll go with the person that might not be quite as talented that they love to hang out with for a couple weeks right. than someone that eh, they kill, but they're, they're an asshole. Absolutely. And I love that you have two examples. It's, uh, you know, you know, being cool and nice is a major theme of this podcast. Just be nice to everybody. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the fact that you had these relationships with Larry David and, and Jerry Seinfeld and how that directly led to an opportunity to write for them. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, always continues to lead to really wonderful things. With my book, for example, uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, um, you know, they have a great uh, forum in L.A. called Writer's Block, where they take over the Writer's Guild Theater, and you ask someone to um, interview you for the book, and they were like, we really want Larry David, and I was like, he's super busy, and I just don't know if they're if he's going to do it, and... Uh, you know, he's the type of friend I reached out, totally expecting no. And five minutes later, his email, like, you know, happy to help you out whenever you want. And that sold out my writer's block. And that sold, you know, we were sold out of books. And your friends always come through for you. Um, as when he leans on me to come through for him for um, something he needs for an idea for a show or whatever. You know, everybody helps each other. And... Um, it's true, those friends really, you know, I, I know so many examples of, I mean, Paul Reiser, he's the entire reason I got into comedy. We went to college together. We were in a funny theater troupe in college together. And he told me about these nightclubs in New York that he would go down to and go to open mic night. But, um, you know, the story of him getting diner is he went along with another comic who had an audition uh, for one of the guys in diner. And the friend went and auditioned, and then the casting director came out to the waiting room and said, okay, you're next. And Paul was like, oh, I'm just here with my friend. And they were like, well, I don't know. You want to come in and read anyway? He was like, sure. And that, you know, was one of the building blocks of his um, movie career. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing I have, a, you know, a lot in my book, I have a lot of, like, principles that you should never, I don't feel, ever stray from because nothing good comes from it. And so much of my attitude for being in a comedy for so long is like, do everything, you know, 
how easy would it have been for Paul Reiser when the casting person came out and said, oh, well, do you want to read? Like, oh, no thanks, I'm just here with my buddy. Like, take those opportunities because any opportunity I've ever been presented with or any opportunity anybody is presented with, I think the best things to ask yourself are, what's the best thing that can happen from this and what's the worst thing? And honestly, the worst thing is always uh, that I didn't get it or they said no or whatever. And you'll see over time that... People saying no, rejecting you, happens all the time. It's part of the business. It's not like you let it roll off your back and you move on, but you got to be out there to get ahead. And you've got to take all those opportunities and just run with them because that's how great things happen. When they asked you to write for Seinfeld, did you have to do a best case, worst case scenario for that? Or was it just like, yeah? Um, You know, honestly, you know, I thought that, that might be kind of a rhetorical question, like who wouldn't jump at writing for Seinfeld? But, you know, I was a working road comic at the time, and I had um, a lot of dates, and um, I felt like, oh, it's going to be tough for me to stay home, and um, I had to kind of wean myself off of, you know, getting off the road which and canceling a lot of dates, you know, which is never easy, but that opportunity I knew. You know, the show wasn't quite the hit. It became... A couple years later, but I still knew, like, this is a golden opportunity. This is an amazing opportunity. And I ran with it. But, you know, look, that's not to say that my first day there, I came in with a notebook full of ideas. I felt like if I get this opportunity, um, you know, I'm ready to go. Uh, Because, you know, conversely, sometimes people get great opportunities and then they just don't show up creatively. And then it's like, well, boy, you really blew that, you know? So um, I didn't have to struggle that long, certainly, um, with Seinfeld, because I knew that this was definitely something that I always wanted to pursue. And what I loved also about Seinfeld was, you know, there are so many stand-up comics on that writing staff. And I think what Larry and Jerry liked about hiring other comics is, like when we would do the live tapings, You know, it's the thing I still love about live tapings. You know, when a joke doesn't work, the writers huddle together and you come up with, you know, alternates for the joke. And it's always very exciting. But I've worked with some kind of classic writer writers that when a joke like that bombs, they're like, oh, you know what? We'll get Laffy the laugh machine to laugh at it. It's fine. Let's just use it. You know, whereas I think comics really learn a respect for the audience that like, well, if that joke didn't work here at the live taping, Um, We can come up with some other choices, kind of like they're the boss. And I think it's a really good thing about performing live that you learn like, yeah, they're the boss. If they didn't get that joke, well, we're going to write a bunch of, you know, a few others. And um, I think that's what's always been, you know, the other thing about being a stand-up comic and starting out that way is it makes you so tough. I mean, because, you know, to get better and bombing and all the stories that every comedian has of how you've fallen on your face somewhere and worst situation ever, I, you know, it, it gives you such grit and such a great foundation. I mean, people are always like, you know, I don't want to return the sweater at Macy's. And it's like, uh, you know, it's, that's no problem. A confrontation <laughs> like that, you know, I've been, I've had drunk strangers, you know, uh, pelt me with insults. Um, I think I can return a sweater. At What's Macy's. the deal with this uh, moth? Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> right. I, that's uh, you could punch that up for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I was going to ask you, you know, coming prepared for that first day of on the writing um, staff of Seinfeld mm-hmm. with a notebook of ideas, did they give you any sort of like just bring everything and every mundane aspect of your life to, uh, that could be a storyline or is that just proactively like I got to have something? Yeah, no, I really, I don't think anybody who was ever hired kind of got um, an instruction booklet even beforehand of like come with ideas. I think everybody knew. I, I knew that they, I had pitched them before um, when um, I was trying to get a job the year before or maybe two. Um, see, that's the same, another one of my lessons about, I did, you know, I think people are so afraid of failing. It's like, welcome failure because some of my greatest successes have come out of failures. I mean, it was probably a year or two before I went and I pitched stories to Seinfeld and they didn't take them. And I wasn't to get a staff writing job, but you know, I still stayed open and excited about it. So that two years later, even though they didn't use any ideas, they thought of me to write for the show. So you never know where something great can happen if you just stay positive and let things roll off your back and don't get bitter about it. Um, so I just always knew that at Seinfeld, they really responded to personal stories that if I came in and pitched something and I said, well, this really happened, that it got a bit of a leg up. So when I went in and pitched, um, Elaine thinks that the Korean manicurists are talking about her behind her back in Korean, right away, Larry not only responded to it, but when I said, and that's happened to me in New York, which it did. And when we shot the episode, they used the name of my real nail salon, which led to many years of free manicures for me when I went back to New York. But um, I knew that they would love that. Same thing. Or your mind would work. I remember hearing Kathy Buckley, who's a great comedian who's deaf, on the Howard Stern Show. And she was talking about how she could lip read. And then I pitched an idea, you know, George brings a deaf woman with him to a party to lip read his um, ex-girlfriend's lips to find out why she broke up with him. That was another idea that Larry David would stand up and go, we're doing that, we're using that, you know. And other ideas, you know, he would, if he wasn't as excited, he'd say, I could see that on another show. Or, you know, it didn't feel as specific and small to him, but... Any writing staff you work on, you have to get into the head of the showrunner because it's really their, it's their party and it's their show and you have to start thinking the way that they do. Do you have any just uh, overarching advice just for a comic that wants to take that next step of getting on a writing staff? Whether they have well, they're friends Jamie, with Jerry Samfeld or not? <laughs> I'm going to share a secret that I have in my book that I really think is invaluable after all these years of being in the business. You know, people are like, oh, write a spec script and that's the way to get in. I think the best way to get on staff at a show is to take the lowest runner job at any show. They're always looking for people who'll internship, work for free, just get, you know, I call it getting into the machine. Like just take whatever job there is there because I've known so many people over the years who got the writer's coffee or, you know, was a a PA, production assistant, got the writer's lunch, but hung out in the writer's room. And lo and behold, they were funny. And cut to a few months later, hey, uh, they pitched a funny idea. And that became an episode. And then that led to them getting a writing job. So I really feel like 
if there's a show that you're dying to work on and you think I am just absolutely perfect for this, now they all have a main number. You know, you just also have to be a little resourceful. You call the main number of that show and you just say, um, is there any way that I could get an internship or do you take internships? Is there any way that I could get a production assistant job? And um, I think that's an amazing stepping stone to getting into TV that yeah. you won't hear at any of your how to write seminars. And I definitely know people have taken that approach through The Simpsons and other shows that, um, yeah, it, it's the writer's assistants that you want to, again, it's like proving that if, if you're nice and cool and have good ideas right? and people already know they want to be around you, let's not take a chance on some unknown. Let's get this person that we already love. Absolutely. I mean, even now, I have a pilot um, that ABC Studios bought and if it gets made, your fingers crossed. I mean, the way that it works is we'll shoot the pilot and I'll have all these writer friends who will call me and say, can I help you when you shoot your pilot? And I'll be like, absolutely. And it kind of becomes an unwritten, you know, unspoken about kind of tryout. Like they help you with your pilot the week that you're shooting. And if somebody really blows you away afterwards, I'd be like, well, I really want to hire that person. I mean, they really prove themselves that week. You don't get paid. You don't, you maybe get, you know, a hundred dollar Amazon card for doing it, but it's kind of the way that things work. And I mean, the best thing that you can do is really just prove yourself, not only by your work, but with your, you know, like we keep talking about, your attitude and your pleasantness, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, if somebody is not an easy hang, it doesn't matter how funny they are, why would you hire them? If you don't want to be around them. Do you have any, I mean, and you've written for so many other shows, uh, Larry Sanders, SNL, like is there any uh, situations or people without naming names that stand out as being either super pleasant and it led to this or super unpleasant and it led to that? I, I think sadly there are more stories of people who were super unpleasant and it led to them being fired. And a lot of it is um, people being upset that their sketches didn't get on and t having an attitude about it. Um, so much of, I think, comedy, but just of business, is keeping your head down and doing your work and letting it roll off your back when things are rejected because things are rejected all the time. I mean, um, I just saw an amazing documentary on Hulu about uh, the National Lampoon. And that was kind of a generation before me and I didn't know much about it. I knew that it led to... SNL and all that kind of thing. What's amazing about it is this guy, Doug Kenny, who was a co-founder of the National Lampoon, he, you know, co-wrote Caddyshack. He was the producer of, I, I, I mean, of Animal House and went on to do Caddyshack, okay? And in this documentary, they're talking about how depressed he, he became after Caddyshack that it wasn't the hit that Animal House was. And it's like, how many years later? It's like, oh my God, why would you be sad for two seconds about, I mean, Caddyshack still to this day yeah. is like a classic, but people get too um, internal about things. And, you know, if you're going to get upset about the success of, you know, Caddyshack, it's like, you've really got to like, stop being your own worst enemy, you know, and really um, just look at all the positives that are out there because there there are so many positives. So sadly, I think in my years, 
I've seen too many people who are so talented and so funny and so good, but they just self-destructed because people didn't want to be around them. They weren't professional anymore or uh, they just didn't let things, you really got to let the failures roll off your back and just keep your head down and keep working. Yeah, it makes me think about another major theme of the show. Every episode this has come up at Entitlement. Mm -hmm. And whether you're writing for SNL and your sketches aren't getting on or um, just the idea of that you feel like the world owes you or this show owes you. And you very easily could have, after you you submit ideas to Seinfeld and they passed a couple of years before you were brought on as a writer, Mm -hmm. you know, been felt entitled and said, fuck that. And, but you know, letting it roll off your back led to that opportunity later. Yeah. I mean, there's just no opportunity for, there's just no place to be bitter about things. I mean, I tell the story in my book about, I was a kind of, um, you know, I was in the heyday of my stand-up career and everything was, you know, I'd just done the Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian Special on HBO. And I met this agent that was like, I could get you like so much better bookings and I could get you so much better money. Like come up to my office and show me your gigs and how much you're getting and we'll talk. And I brought him a list and he was like, oh, you know, you did chuckles for that. I could get you three times that. And oh, you're, you're working at this place. Oh, yeah, I could get you much better club bookings. It's like six months later, literally, Jamie, I'm working at ground round restaurants comedy night on the Jersey Turnpike. Like no joke. And I kept saying to him, like, where's all the, you promised me the moon. Like, where's all this great gigs? And he was like, I'm working on you opening for Frank. And I'm like, like, who, Frank Stallone? Because, like, (laughs) what are you talking about? And he's like, no, Frank Sinatra. I thought he was out of his mind. Like, okay, yeah, no, I'm sure you can get me to open for Frank Sinatra. You can't get me off the Jersey Turnpike. And, like, lo and behold, like, two months later, he had some weird, he knew... Frank Sinatra's manager and he's like yeah you're gonna open for Frank Sinatra at Bally's in Las Vegas and I open for Frank Sinatra so it's like you never know where something great is gonna happen but if you just keep your head down and keep doing what you're supposed to do which is work on your stuff even if your stuff isn't getting on on a show like uh, I don't know take the showrunner aside and say can I grab five minutes with you later today I just want to see if there's a way you can put me in the right direction of where I'm missing it, you know, in my pitches or where my scripts are not working for you. Um, if you just give me five minutes, I, I would love it. I mean, everybody just likes a good attitude, a can-do attitude. And, and if you're bitter, you're just going to be gone and back in your apartment. So why do that? Yeah, and that makes you think too, and going back to the, you know, the gatekeepers, like, you know, the office assistants, you know, they're going to be major agents, you know, in five or 10 years and the, the lowly writers and assistants, they're going to be, um, you know, touring comics. And so you never know who's listening. And even if you're pitching ideas that are maybe aren't getting on the show, Mm -hmm. there's other people in that room that might think they're brilliant and they're going to have their own show in five years. And so you never know. No, you just absolutely never know. And it's so important to just always, um, put your best foot forward, you know, like another one of my staples of advice is like control what you can control and what you can't control. Screw it. Like I can control, uh, what I write, become a better writer, going on stage, become a better comic, trying new material. That's what I can control. But 
um, you know, showing up late for a gig or uh, walking off stage because you're pissed about, you know, that kind of thing. That all that leads to is you not (laughs) getting back there again. So so why do it? There's always a good way to handle something. I mean, it's amazing. There was a writer when I was at Seinfeld who didn't really cut it the year that he was there and he was fired. And then a year passed and then he approached Larry again and said, I have some new ideas. You would you, you know, be open to hearing them? And Larry said, yeah. And he loved his ideas and he got back on the writing staff. That's I mean, how, you know, how many how often are you going to hear that? Right. But it just shows like if you have stick to itiveness and look, he could have said, I, Larry, I have some more ideas and I'd love for you to hear him. And Larry David could have said, oh, I'm busy and I, I don't really have the time. And say, no problem, you know, who knows what can happen, but you have to, you know, it's like you're the ambassador of your career. So be the best ambassador that you can because um, there's so many times that you can just turn things around like that or just make something, you know, so much better. Um, Just to circle back real quick, Mm -hmm. did you get to meet Old Blue Eyes? Is that what they called them? I did, yes. (laughs) Well, not only did I get to meet him, but... He was such a gentleman. He would bring me after my set, and they were, they were a great, great audience, but I also learned a very good comedian trick um, that uh, that gig that I still use this many years later. It's like, I felt like the audience was going to be like, who's this girl coming out, Frank? Like, what's the story? And, and when I came out on stage, Jamie, I would say, oh, it's so great to be here at Ballet's. I was so honored when Mr. Sinatra asked me to join him here in Las Vegas. And it kind of was a very subtle thing to the audience of, oh, you know, they would nudge each other. Oh, okay, Frank asked her to be here with her, you know. Um, So that was a very subtle thing that kind of, you know, amazing audiences. And then when I came off stage, he would bring me back out for a bow, which he's Frank Sinatra. He didn't have to do that. And then he would perform, um, which is amazing because a lot of comics of my generation, like Bill Maher, opened for... Uh, a very important singer at the time. I shouldn't say her name, but um, her talent is supreme <laughs> and um, wouldn't put his name up on the marquee. So, you know, I'd, it's like amazing that there are giants like Frank Sinatra who would not only give me billing, but bring me back out for a bow. But, you know, I also talk about that in my book too, about it's like nobody ever gets too big. You know, nobody ever gets to the point, I think, where your shit doesn't stink. Like, when I co-created Ellen DeGeneres' CBS sitcom with uh, Mitch Hurwitz, a guy who went on to do uh, Rested Development, super funny guy. And anyway, we were looking to cast Ellen DeGeneres' mom. And, you know, you hire a casting director, and so many big actresses, you'd see their names, and it'd be like, offer only offer only because people get too big where they're like well I'm not going to audition I mean if they want to give me the part then I'll take it well so we're looking through the list and then we see Cloris Leachman's name is on the list I was like oh she's coming in at 3 o'clock I'm like well this has to be wrong she's sure she's offer only they're like no she was not only happy to come in but happy to audition she came in Oscar winner she auditioned she hit it out of the park and then when that happens, then every other person who's not an Oscar winner and not comedy royalty, like Cloris Leachman, they just lost a job because she came in and auditioned and got the job and 
kind of proud to say, like, even since then, has worked consistently after that. So, you know, it kind of goes circles back to the beginning of the podcast when I was saying, just always do your thing. You know, where people are always like, I'm too good for this, or no, thank you, or sitting in a waiting room, I- I'm not supposed to audition, so I won't. Just like, you know, jump in, because the most amazing things happen from jumping in. And the worst thing that can happen sometimes from jumping in is, I mean, Paul Reiser could have gone, you know, auditioned for a diner and the casting director said, okay, thank you. Good job. But they didn't hire him, but at least he took the chance. It's like so much about, uh, taking a chance because you see that in the end, someone saying no, or not getting a part is not horrible. Do you have any regrets early on? Like, did you ever say no to anything that you now look back and like, oh my God. Um, that's a very good question. And if not, that's totally cool. Yeah, I know. Um, I don't really, uh, you know, I left Seinfeld because I went to do my own sitcom that I had on the WB called All Right Already, um, which was so much fun and did for a season. Um, and in retrospect, sometimes I think, oh, I could have still worked at Seinfeld for a couple more seasons, but same thing, you know, you never know when an opportunity like that is going to come along. And it was still a great experience. I still met great writers on my show that I still work with, you know, today. I mean, it is all about like two degrees. And so much of what I love about comedy and the business is, you know, X can lead to Y, can lead to Z, can lead to A. It's like, you just never know. It's just what's so great is just being out there and that kind of stuff happening. And that's part of the, this career. I mean, in any creative career is you, you never know where anything's going to take you. Right. I mean, what I would really love to know is, I mean, to become, you know, who you are at the improv, like, how did you, how did you do that? That's like, I'm sure there are people out there listening and are like, well, I would love to pick the talent at the improv. How did you do that? It's same kind of story, but with uh, much lo- lower <laughs> um, career marks to this point. Yeah. But um, no, I just I, I loved comedy and wanted to write and perform it and started doing shows. And that led to uh, an opening at a to run a theater in Santa Monica in 2006 mm-hmm. and was there for a couple of years. And then we started raising money to create content. And I now all of a sudden I'm making web series and, and then that ended and I didn't know where it was going to be. Started working with, do you know, Judy Carter? Yes. Who wrote, you know, the comedy Bible. Right. Yes. And that was like, um, you know, 2010 was my, you know, career low. Like, uh-huh. what am I doing? Breaking up with my girlfriend in seven years, moving back in, moving with my grandma. Mm. Um, this will all be part of my, um, my book one day. Um, <laughs> and then Judy Carter, a friend of mine, a random friend was like, Hey, she's looking for someone to help with some of her classes. She was teaching comedy classes. Right. On, I think uh, she still does, right? She, no, she actually, well, she just teaches, um, public speaking she got into that world oh um but i just got this random job working for judy carter and then helped her administrate her stand-up classes um she would hold her showcases here at the improv uh-huh i met rita who at the time was just a like a night manager um and now is our gm right and um wow. when the judy carter ended at the end of 2010 i sent this random email to rita saying you know i've run a theater in the past Right. Um, I know how to work with talent and stuff. If anything ever comes up at the improv, didn't hear anything for two months. And then this small space, the lab, Yeah. Um, it had been Second City for about a decade. And Second City had just moved to a new location in Hollywood. 
and they wanted to do something with the room. Yep. She said when that came up, she just re- remembered the email I sent. She remembered working with me in a very limited capacity. I would mm-hmm. just send her nice emails. And so she called me up and did that for a year, helped make that. And then next thing I know, they're offering me to book the club. Right. Amazing. And so that's my quick story. But see what is so great about that. I mean, what I really zero in on is you sent that email to Rena. And it happens to me still now where I'm like, oh, I don't really feel, you get that thing in your stomach, like I don't really feel like, and you did it. And the worst thing that could have happened was either Rita didn't respond or said, oh, thanks for reaching out, but we have someone else we're thinking of. But look what that led to, just because you reached out and connected with her. Mm-hmm. And then here you are. But, you know, it's also the same thing that I, one of my basic principles that I always tell people is like, you got to be the squeaky wheel, you know? But it's a delicate balance because the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but the squeaky wheel can also be a pain in the ass and make you want to rip your ears out. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a, another kind of like feel like kind of secret that I share in my book is, you know, because you have to, you're always asking kind of for something from someone in terms of getting ahead. And I think a really good way to ask somebody something is to use the word consider. And I still use it now. Uh, Would you consider having me come in and pitch for your show? Would you consider uh, reading a spec script of mine? When you say to someone, would you consider, it's like you put the ball in their court as opposed to someone asked me like, will you read my spec? I, 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 you know, in my head, I'm like, I, you know, I double back, like reeling away, like it's too intense and it's too on it. Like, but when you say, will you consider it's a, or, you know, already the, uh, what you're asking someone is not threatening because it's saying it's, this is up to you. It's not, you know, this is your call and your decision. And I talk about this because, you know, I was on Celebrity Apprentice with, uh, <laughs> Who would ever think I'd be saying it with our president, oh Donald God. Trump? And a lot of people don't remember me on because I was the first person thrown off, which was like a nightmare. You know, talk about a great talent coordinator from NBC, a guy named Chuck LaBella, who asked me to come on the show that season. I was like, Chuck, I'll do it. But like, I don't want to be that loser that's like thrown off first. Like, oh, that'll never happen. You know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So cut to Celebrity Apprentice. It was a year that. Sharon Osbourne was on, Cindy Lauper, and Holly Robinson Pete, and we were supposed to run a diner. And I said to the, we worked as a team, like just the girls, and I said, I'll, um, I'll get everybody into the restaurant, you know, because I'm very comfortable talking to people and huckstering, I, you know, happy to just get people outside to come in. And I got, it was like full. And whatever with the diner, we're in the boardroom, and then Trump says to Holly, like, so what happened with the diner with the girls? And Holly Robinson goes, well, Carol didn't even participate. She was outside. She didn't even work on the, in the diner at all. And it was like, it made me crazy, like totally thrown under the bus. Anyway, so the pig pile starts. They all find, you know, I'm an easy target. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm the first person fired off the season. And then I was thinking, well, I'm not leaving without something for my charity. And I'm really into animal rescue. And my charity was the North Shore Animal League, which is a great rescue in New York where I'm from. And when Trump says to me, all right, well, Carol, you're fired. In my head, I just said, 
Well, um, I accept that, Mr. Trump, but um, I know you said you're a fan of my charity, the North Shore Animal League. Would you consider making a donation to them? And he said, yeah, I'll give you $10,000. So, you know, it was fantastic. And, of course, Did I you checked. You know, your check was from him, and it got to North Shore Animal League. But, you know, I always go back to that because if I was fired and I said, okay, I accept that, will you make a donation to my charity? Like, you know, in your head, you're like, it, it's too uh, aggressive. Mm-hmm. And just saying to someone, will you consider making a donation? It's already takes so much of the pressure off. So, Would you ever consider hiring Holly Robinson Pete to write on one of your shows? <laughs> No, <laughs> that's a she threw you yeah, under the bus. That's a dead issue. Oh, I think about that too. Even having you, and it really is such a pleasure having you on the podcast. But I always put it, especially to people I look up to, um, and I feel like asking someone to do a podcast is yeah. like the like no one wants to hear that. I remember your email. So I always put it like that. Like um, yes, you no you pressure had an out <laughs> right. If you don't feel like doing it, it's to- and that. I can't tell you from that perspective of being approached by someone, it makes you so much more open to things because um, I think when people feel muscled or like, you've got to do this for me, it's it's an instant turnoff. And I've seen people ask people for things where if they just took that step back and put the ball in their court, they would have gotten what they want, but they just asked, it, it kind of blew up in, in the asking. Mm-hmm. So stand-up, going back to stand-up, you did Letterman 25 times? I did. On the dot 25? I think it was on the dot. I did one of his specials too, but I didn't do stand-up on it, but I played a character on it. So that might have been 26, but... Talk about like just getting on that show and then was it... I guess David Letterman is the ultimate gatekeeper of David Letterman. Okay, well, here's another example, okay, of the greatest letdown, the greatest what felt like failure to me became the greatest victory. All right. So I do the New York Laugh-Off that Showtime did. And this is 1980, okay? And I came in fourth. Um, Eddie Murphy came in fifth. But it was like Steve Middleman. People are still around. Mark Schiff, Rick Overton. I was fourth. And then Eddie came in fifth. Anyway... I get a call from the Tonight Show coordinator at the time, talent coordinator, a guy named Jim McCauley, who out of the blue says to me, David Letterman saw you on that show and thinks you're really funny. This is before Letterman had a show. Will you send me um, a tape to audition for the Tonight Show? So I'm like beside myself because, you know, to my generation of comics, to do the Tonight Show was the pinnacle and not just the pinnacle I think it's hard for younger people to imagine back then like everybody in the if you're on the tonight show everybody in America saw you it was you'd go to work it was what they called the water cooler show you'd stand around yeah I saw that person you know the viewership was crazy anyway Jim McCauley apparently sees my tape and they pass they they didn't take me for the tonight show now as a comic that's a devastating moment. But like I've been talking about the entire podcast of just not taking things personally and letting things roll off your back. Lo and behold, when Letterman got his show, they reached out to me right at the beginning and said, come on the show. And I did my first spot. And Letterman said to me afterwards, uh, when you could talk to him after a set, 
and he said, you come on. Whenever you have a set ready, you just come on. Just no, don't audition. Just call us up and tell us you're ready. And that led to my 25 times. And what's amazing about it is talk about someone who is a support system for your career. I mean, how incredible was that yeah. to have that? So um, I still to this day really, you know, of all the people who have helped me so much, really give him so much props for I don't even know if that would happen, Jamie, now. We're on Fallon or any of these shows. You think anybody's just, come on whenever you want. I mean, it's also such a numbers thing now that you can't go on these shows every three months like I did back then. But that was that opportunity then. So it really was amazing. I mean, I finally got on The Tonight Show and talk about another just keep your head down and stick with it. I auditioned for The Tonight Show 22 times until I got on. 22. Okay? You auditioned and almost as many times as you were on Letterman. That's right. That's incredible. I, know, I never thought about that. But what's amazing is like maybe after 13 times or 18 times auditioning, I really could have said like enough bullshit. Like I guess they don't want me. I, it's kind of <laughs> clear. But every time they said, oh, we'll have you. It's like I showed up. I did my thing uh, while we're passing this time. Okay. In my head, see you next time. And then 22 times. So you never know. But it's like if I had had an attitude about it, and I think I could have, you know, it's like enough already. But I didn't. And I stayed pleasant about it. And then lo and behold, I got it. So um, I don't know. I feel like the, you know, like this main theme of your podcast today is really just to you know, stay pleasant because if you are crappy to people about stuff or take things personally or act out about stuff, and I've seen so many people act out for sure over the years, it doesn't get you anywhere. So why would you do it? Absolutely. So I guess last question yeah. that I'm always curious about, you are someone that's done a million things that are active. Um, what do you have like a daily routine? Do you meditate? Do you exercise? What do you eat? Any of that stuff. I do. Inspire I, me. Um, <laughs> well, this is not like, um, when I was younger though, cause I, you know, I always talk about like knowing Jerry Seinfeld from day one, you know, he always worked hard. It's like, so the comedians who came up with him, nobody's surprised at his success. Cause he'd always be like, I have to write an hour a day. And like, you know, at that time it felt like an hour a day, what a nerd, you know, <laughs> like it was only an hour, but he did that every day. At some point he would just say enough hanging out. I got to go home and write. Um, I'm really into, actually Howard Stern got me into it, into Transcendental Meditation. I started doing it in 2009. It's really affected my life. It's amazingly positive, great tool. Um, I really like to stay fit because um, it makes me feel young. (laughs) So that's important to me. I'm working out because it feels so good. Uh, So those kind of things I just feel... Oh, the other story I can tell, because this has to do with The Letterman Show, is uh, early on in my career, probably a couple years into it, I started having a glass of wine before I went on stage. And things were going pretty well. Like, all my fear went away. I was really loose on stage, uh, getting loads of laughs, until it became like two glasses of wine before I went on. And... I remember doing Robert Klein had a radio show at that time and they asked me to do it and I was in the green room and I asked somebody oh do you have any like wine or anything and I remember that person looking at me like 
oh, okay, I guess I got to get her a glass of wine before. And then when I got the Letterman show, I remember thinking, I don't want to be in that, I don't want to be in that green room saying to somebody, can I get a glass of wine? And I said to myself, it's got to stop now. It's just got to stop. And I did. And so to this day, it's not like I ever had to go to AA or anything, but I always warn comics and performers, like, don't get into that trap because that one is really hard to break. And I'm really glad I did it. So do you don't drink at all? I do drink socially and I, you know, I love my wine. Mommy likes her cocktails, but I don't, certainly don't do it before I go on stage. Got it. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you know. That, That advice resonates perfectly. Good. Especially working at this club. Right. And of the last couple of months, it's a glass of red that's turned into two or three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. And it's scary because um, I once worked, one of my also bottom out moments was I did a college with Paul Reiser and I was supposed to go on first and Paul was supposed to go on second. We got to the cl- to the college late. We got lost driving to Vermont and I had brought this little airline bottle of wine with me and I said to Paul you got to go on first and he was like why and I was like you just have to and he just looked at me in the way that friends do who know each other of like okay I'm not gonna ask any questions I'll go on but that was another moment of like this is not this is not working out what was fun and made me loose on stage is becoming a crutch yeah. and a bad scene I love it well this has been amazing do you have any final parting amazing things you want to impart You've already imparted so much, so no pressure. Uh, Would you consider it? (laughs) Um, Well, buy my book because um, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Crying, I'm telling you, it's all this stuff and more. Um, I really feel like what someone, like I said, I I don't like to sell it because more than anything, I'm just so uh, overwhelmed by the messages I get from people about how it's really helped them with their career. And that really makes me happy because it's one thing to write a book and, oh, I did this and, oh, I did that. But for people to say, oh, that really helped me or I really kind of get it now after reading your book has been so gratifying to me. I think it's honestly a must read for anyone that's looking to make a career in any creative field or anything. So much of it is basic stuff that, uh, you know, I think about all the time and what this podcast is all about. And the praise for it is the perfect mix of storytelling and just here's five bullet points of things to do in this situation. Good. From I'm glad, really glad you got that out of it. Absolutely. Well, I think it's amazing. Everyone get how to succeed in business without really crying. Lessons from a life in comedy by Carol Liefer, my guest. Carol, I end every show okay, by yes. saying this. Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Be undeniable. And be cool as fuck always. Thank you for joining me. I think what you say after every show is really, I mean, that's the best advice ever. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, I think your book gives the, the how-to do all that. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, you can see Carol here next week on Thursday. Yes. The February, who knows? 16th. If it's about, 16th. Mm-hmm. Eight o'clock show. Yeah. Early, right? You know I like to go in early. I do know that. <laughs> I did make a note of that. And um, look for her in other places Two. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Carol, thank you. Thank you. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.